Debbie and I uh, do a worship service once a month at the um, Hudson Valley Rehabilitation Center. Debbie plays accordion, and I sing. Terrible music ministry. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's the worst in Ulster County, for sure. And then I give the sermon. And Debbie reads some scripture, and I give the sermon. But I always tell people, half the congregation is asleep before I give the sermon. So it's nice to see everyone's awake here for now. <laughs> I had a rough childhood. I was raised in Bergen County. My parents never went to church, but they, we had to go, four boys. So we went to this congregational church. And my um, most memory of that was about fourth grade. If you could recite all the books of the Bible, they they'd give you a Bible. So I got my Bible. And my father was extremely abusive at home to us, physically. Uh, he was an alcoholic, raging alcoholic, very violent. And he beat up on my mother. And I was small, couldn't do much about it. But I'd hear them fighting and him hitting her in, uh, in their bedroom. And I had a flashlight, and under the covers, I would read Psalm 23 from that Bible that I got. But gradually, I sort of faded away from it. What was going on at home and the church itself, or we had this charismatic, very good-looking pastor. One night, he was on the bus on the George Washington Bridge coming home from the city, and he was drunk, and he was hitting on women in the bus, and the bus driver stopped the bus in Fort Lee and kicked them off the bus. And there were two parishioners that happened to be on the bus at the time that he, unbeknownst to him, I imagine. So they ratted him out, and he was drummed out of the church. The guy that took over was an interim pastor, and he was my confirmation teacher. We had a rule in our family. You had to go to church until confirmation, and then you could decide yourselves. Everybody decided not to go. Um, but my confirmation teacher, the interim pastor, his wife died of cancer, and he committed suicide while he was my teacher. I developed a gradual disdain for the church, religion. I, I, I appreciated Madeline Murray O'Hare, who overtook, you know, that's the reason we don't have prayer in schools anymore. She came, became my hero. I was an ardent atheist. Well, it was always... Yes, be no, or no, be yes in my family. It was so erratic. When you're dealing with an alcoholic, you don't know what to expect. And he would just make promises and, 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 and just break them right and left. There's a line in Mary Poppins where the kids say to Mary Poppins, uh, we'll promise to be on our best behavior always if you'll stay and not go away. And Mary Poppins says to the, uh, Jane and Michael Banks, says, that's a pancake promise. And they said, what's a pancake promise? Well, a pancake promise is one that's easily made and easily broken. Well, I lived a childhood of, of pancake promises. My oldest brother, my father bought him a used car. My next oldest brother, my father bought him a used car. And then one day he got drunk and he bought me 
a brand new Ford Falcon red convertible with a black top. Not hard to get a date with that car. <laughs> the only thing was, my mother kiboshed it. And so that car was taken back. It bothered me a little, but not too much. I was sort of used to it. On my 17th birthday, my father said to me, as I was about to go out of the house, he, he said, your friends are throwing you a surprise party tonight. Who would do that? <laughs> Who would say such a thing? And he was drunk. So it, it, it was difficult, but I, um, I moved to San Francisco. I lived there for 40 years. And um, I became my father, unfortunately. Booze, drugs, smoked a pack of Winston's a day. I was on welfare. Raising uh, a daughter by myself. It was just a disaster. And one day I went, um, I applied for a, a job as an orderly in the hospital, and they found a lump in my throat. Well, I convinced myself that I was dying of lymphatic cancer. Where I had heard that, I don't know. It wasn't true, but I was convinced of it. And I remember my apartment in San Francisco. I remember the day I, I was thinking, you know, drinking myself, carousing, smoking cigarettes, on welfare, raising a child by myself, and now I'm dying. And I literally said audibly out loud, there must be more to life than this. And the next day, I walked across the street into a church. And I hadn't been in a church in um, 14 years, I guess, except for marriage, I guess. And I just sat there. I didn't buy a word they were saying. But um, I put a, a $1 food stamp in the offering because I didn't have any money. Later on, when I was head of the endowment fund, I asked how they handled that. Nobody remembered me. Uh, so, but I didn't, I didn't buy any of it, believe any of it. I was so angry. But I went out and I, since I didn't have a bunch of money, I went out to a used bookstore down the street on Fillmore Street. And I bought this Bible. It was like about this thick. It was called the Confraternity Bible. I believe it's a Catholic Bible. And it has books like, in addition to the books we know, it has books like Sirach and Maccabees, like added things to it. Well, I wasn't going to read that whole big fat Bible by any means. I knew that, especially numbers. <laughs> but uh, what I did read was really meaningful to me. It was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because for the first time in my life, there were some ground rules. My pastors never had it in the church Jersey. My father certainly didn't have it. We didn't have any ground rules. It was, you wouldn't know what was going to happen next. And so this gave me ground rules. You know, it's, it's not that long a sermon. And uh, it, it, it really, really helped me. Well, I was raising um, my daughter, and we, it was tough. It was tough at first. It got better before I went to church, but um, we would fight about 
doing the dishes. I tried to get her to do the dishes. She would never do the dishes. They'd sit in the sink for three days until they smelled. And finally, I would do them. But I said, we, we need help here. So let's go see a counselor, a psychotherapist. Well, this was in the late 1970s, maybe 1980. And it was a stigma at that time, especially for a child, to go to counseling. I mean, it was like 72, was it, with Tom Eagleton was kicked off the presidential or dropped from the pres uh, vice presidential ticket because he had been to a counselor. That's where things were at that time. And so we went and we saw this counselor, and Rachel uh, just hated going to this, and she was embarrassed. She just thought it was oh, psychotherapy. So one day the counselor says to me, Jack, I think I want to see you alone. And Rachel turns to me and goes, see, I told you you were the crazy one. <laughs> we, we had on our refrigerator these kind of note cards, I guess you call them, note cards. And I had, to help with some discipline, I had written from Colossians 3, verse 20, children. Obey your parents and everything, for that is pleasing to the Lord. So anytime there was, she wasn't obeying, I pointed that note on the thing. Well, she comes up with the idea of putting up Colossians 3.21, which is the next verse, which says, Fathers, do not aggravate your children, <laughs> or you discourage them. So when she wouldn't obey me, I would point to the refrigerator, look, obey your parents. And when I bugged her, she would point to the refrigerator and said, don't aggravate your children. <laughs> Anyhow, the yes be yes and the no be no, what is that? That's all about, to me, that's about integrity and trust. I didn't have that, okay? There was no trust in my family. But I don't think in all the areas, probably in the role of parenting, that verse would manifest itself most. Single parenting was hard when you're by yourself, and economically it was difficult. And then so you'd be tired sometimes, and she could just wear me down by saying, you know, asking for this. And I'd say no, no, or yes, yes. But eventually I flip-flopped too. It's like, okay, okay, you know. You can have it, you can do it, whatever it was. I realized this wasn't healthy. Debbie and I know some friends in San Francisco who have adopted daughter, and I remember being around them, and it was so bad. That daughter would just wear that couple out. So they were constantly flip-flopping. The yes became no, or the no became yes. And you could just see that it just was not healthy for those people, that family. And she got kicked kicked out of two schools by the time she was 12. Uh, it's, it's, it's the damage that when you're breaking your promise or you're not keeping your word and the kids don't know how to take that. So I, I changed. I began to let my yes be yes and my no be no. But I realized I couldn't do it right away. You, you want to keep your word. So that's why I entitled this sermon, Let Your Yes Be Yes and Your No Be No, Maybe. Because 
I learned, I mean, I was on the job training here as a parent, but I also did take some courses like PET, it's called Parent Effectiveness Training, which they, they incorporate active listening, but eventually Rachel picked up on it and said, you're doing that PET stuff again. <laughs> it never works. But what I did learn, and if any parents, grandparents, to use the word maybe, or we'll see. I know it's not defined in our passage today as such, but it's because you can say maybe or we'll see until you are certain that your yes be yes and your no be no. And I found that so effective that I could keep my promise. I could keep my word. I became a stockbroker. I was in the financial services business, as Dick mentioned. And one thing I found odd in that business, I'd be selling stock on the phone, and somebody would buy it. And there was no money. They would buy it. It was just on word of mouth. It's, it seemed so odd in that profession. And I never had a, tra a trade renege on them either. Some firms now require that the money's there first, but I, I don't trust. But uh, I, back then, no. You buy a stock, and they send the money in later. It's, it's just seemed odd to me. But the... Um, the motto of the London Stock, Stock Exchange from 1801 is um, dictum meum practum, which means my word is my bond. And that's still, still their motto. And it's so true. And I think that's what these verses are saying. Um, it's about integrity. Your word being your bond. We we go on court and they have us raise our right hand and put it on the Bible and repeat the, uh, I'll tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. Well, that's, that's really odd from this verse too because it's kind of a swearing sort of thing. In fact, the Quakers, um, they were able to incorporate, have that changed in a number of places. I like to think of it as Quaker oaths. That's bad. And so, but they, they, had the, they had the right idea. And there was this sweet, sweet man I, I was privileged to spend a little time with. Um, his name was John Stott, and he was a theologian at the Anglican Church in London. But he's so sweet. He, he actually had a twinkle in his eye. There's such a thing. He had a twinkle in his eye. So, um... He's passed away now, but he said, swearing or taking oath is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. It's like, yes be yes, no be no. You don't have to say anything else. You don't have to say, I swear to God, you know, or if I'm lying, I'm dying. I swear on my mother's grave, even though she was cremated. But you don't have to, you don't have to go beyond that. Anything beyond that is from the enemy. And it's and a guy named another theologian, A.M. Hunter, said oaths arise because people are so often liars. That's a little bit more direct than Stott said, but uh, it's 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 amazing what yes. Well, when somebody you can trust somebody when they say yes, 
and it's earned over time, it's over time. And the no can be respected. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Maybe, but be sure. I submit to you, be sure. Amen.